to tell you guys, like, the Spirit of God was just breaking me during worship. It was, like, so tangible. And then we had Jonathan come up and, and share what he was seeing in the Spirit. And I just want you to know that I think you'll see it's very uh, confirming what Jonathan said to, to what the Lord's put on my heart to share today. <clears throat> so, just a little bit of vision for you. It's, it, I share this often, but my mandate from the Lord is, is to help people to see themselves clearly the way that God sees them, to help them see other people clearly the way that God sees other people, and to see God clearly the way that he sees himself. So I'm all about perception shifts and lens changes and all that kind of stuff. And so Dave recently did an epic sermon series on discovering Paul. So you've learned quite a bit about Paul. So there's already anything I'm going to be talking about about Paul that I'm just going to assume that you know because David did like a master's level teaching on it. Anyway, so I'm titling this sermon, Paul Through the Eyes of Jesus, The Encounter on the Road to Damascus. And, um, Those two on the TVs, man. <laughs> it does look pretty good, doesn't it? But, um, so let's just get into it here. Behold, how good and how pleasant is it when brothers live in harmony. It's like the fine oil on the head running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard over the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has bestowed the blessing of life forevermore. That's Psalm 133. And my version of that is, is the way that I understand what's being said is when you dwell in unity, there is an anointing that's released by God on the community of people that are choosing to dwell in unity. So... This might be, might be difficult to make this logical connection, but I really feel that as we choose to see others through God's eyes, it's going to unlock something special. It's going to unlock a type of unity that God blesses. And in this message, I'm hoping that we can reframe the way that we see Paul by examining how Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, before we do that, though, we have, to, we have to understand a little bit about Apostle Paul, uh, what it means to be a Jewish person, and what it means to be a Christian. And so let's jump in right here. So what does it mean to be a Jewish person, person or the people, the Jewish people? And this is a, like, okay, so guys, we have people of all levels in this room. There's people that know tons about Judaism. There's people that know nothing about Judaism. There's people that know tons about Christianity. There's people that know nothing about Christianity. Or, from everywhere in between, but a really simplified version of, of what does it mean to be Jewish is it's an ethnicity, one. It's important to understand that it's an ethnicity that's tied um, to the DNA or the ancestry of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's one thing that's really important. So they carry the DNA, of, the DNA line specifically of Jacob. <clears throat> and then the next thing is it's a religion. In general, the Jewish people follow the teachings as laid out in the covenant God made with Moses, and they live under what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And then the third thing that's kind of unique is that it also has to do with geography. These people are tied to a land that God gave them, and, um, and you can read about that in the book of Genesis. 
So let's jump into what, what, what did Paul, how does Paul identify himself to us, right? And if you look in the scriptures, you'll see that ethnically Paul was a Jewish man. Yes, he held Roman citizenship, but he, he was a Jewish man, and he tells us that he traces his ancestry to the tribe of Benjamin. Religiously speaking, Paul saw himself as a Jewish person. He was taught by a well-known rabbi named Gamaliel, and he was, also tells us that he was a Pharisee, which is one of the strictest sects of Judaism at that time. And thirdly, Paul does tie himself to the land of Israel. It says that he was, he tells us that he was born in Turkey, um, but he was raised in Jerusalem, which is like the holy city, guys. So, so what's, what's unique about the Jewish people compared to Christian people? I mean, essentially, what's unique is that there's the genetic ancestry that's tied to a faith practice in Judaism, as Jews and Hebrew people, and Jews are waiting for a Messiah to come. As Christians, hopefully if you're a Christian, you know this already, but... We get to keep our ethnicity and culture. It has, none, we have, it has nothing to do with where we tie our ancestry, where our DNA comes from. It has all to do that we're adopted in to the faith through Jesus as Messiah. And so as a Christian, we believe in a Jewish Messiah. Amen. He's not, he's not some white guy from Washington, D.C. You know what I mean? He's, he's actually a Jewish man. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's good. So as humans, we tend to focus on the differences between ourselves. Like our default mode tends to be like, I'm gonna stay with this group and that group's scary and I don't really wanna understand that other group. We tend to be very tribalistic and, and sort of group oriented as human beings. And like, it's not always a bad thing. Honestly, guys, this is something that God put inside of you that actually, um, it gives, it's an ability to differentiate dif differentiate between one thing and another. And that's important because like, if you didn't have that, like when you drove your car, you'd be running into things. You would, you would not be able to understand, like that's a different person on the road, this is not me. Where like if you, oh that's a terrible light. <laughs> Just had a terrible analogy that I'm not gonna share. <laughs> so. You were to drink too much and you went to no, I'm just kidding. So it's this it's this ability that this this ability that God put inside of us lets us like walk into your house as opposed to walking into somebody else's house. Right? These are good things. But if we're not careful, that we can let this wired in nature carry with it the practice of focusing on what's different as opposed to what is common, what we share in common with each other. And um, Honestly, if you do that, if you're going to focus on what's different about people around you, if you're going to like that's what you're going to see is how they're different from you. You're not going to see them clearly. There's no way that you can, because you'll you'll just have all these 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 preconceived notions about that person or these people. You guys see where I'm going with this a little bit? Some of us do. So about five months ago, I was really blessed that the Lord provided financially to be able to go to the land of Israel for the first time. I think it was really appropriate because that was the first, like that was in my first year of being a pastor. And so Pastor David encouraged me. I was like, brother, I think there's, that God has something for you in Israel. I think it's amazing that it's the first year that you're pastoring, taking on a new identity of sorts. And I think that that would, uh, 
that the Lord will just meet you there. And I was a little, I mean, just to be honest with you guys, like I was a little skeptical and, and I'm a little ashamed to say this, but I really didn't have any interest in Israel at all. Like I didn't get, I mean, I'm sorry I didn't, but I didn't get the, I'm sorry because, you know, my two closest Jewish friends were sitting right in front of me. But, uh, but the Lord still was like, hey, I want you to go. And, and it was confirmed through Pastor David. It was confirmed through my wife. And, and then it was confirmed financially when someone donated quite a bit to make it happen. So I was like, all right, God, I'm going. And uh, so to speed up the story a little bit, it's a long journey to Israel. Those of you that have taken the flight you know it's a pretty long journey. And then we also took a pretty cheap flight, so we had to go from one flight to another flight to Israel. So we went from, actually, we ended up going, we were in Turkey. Oh, we were in Turkey, in the Turkish airport. And then we drove, we flew from Turkey down to Israel. Um, but to make a long story short, the first thing that happens when I get off the plane, and when we all get off the plane, is we get out and get into the airport there and start walking out and, and this little guy, he's little to me, right? I mean, everybody's little to me. This little Jewish man standing there, he's our tour guide, his name is Giddy, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time, but you know, we walk, we walk up to him and, and the first thing he says to us, super exuberant, is welcome to Israel, welcome home. He's like, welcome home. He's not just like, not just like welcome to Israel, but he's like, welcome home. And he like really made it a point to, to emphasize like you are home now. You are in you are in the land, the holy land, and, and it was it was cool. And I was tired at the time and Elizabeth and Zeke were there, they know. <laughs> we didn't have the greatest <laughs> Anyway, that was pretty it's worth it. Don't let the flight scare you, you guys. It's totally worth going to Israel and being part of the land. But <clears throat> so among all the things that he said to us, he you know, he took us out and we boarded our bus and we were starting the journey and people were getting situated and he said a lot of things and, and this man is a very cool man like hopefully we can bring him here at some point if you guys were interested like and have him share because he's a really cool guy but to make a long story short he invited us to something i've never thought of before but he basically said i want you guys to be jewish for this time of your trip so he invited us to be jewish and i was like i have no idea what that means <clears throat> but what it meant to him was to ask a lot of questions. That's something that we're not comfortable to do in the American church, by the way. We're not comfortable make, you know, making good questions, thinking about things, you know, causing people to feel questioned. So, like, so we're very much like, okay, we'll just keep to ourselves, right? So he said, ask me lots of questions. This is the next one that really kind of freaked me out. I was like, disagree with me. I was like, what, you wanted me to disagree with you? He's like, no, I'm so used to it. This is the way that it is when we join together. We, you know, one person will have one idea, another person will have like two ideas. And frankly, he made a joke about like, if there was, there was, uh, that's it, two Jews, there would be three opinions. Instead of so, so, so I didn't say that, he said that, I'm not being racist. <laughs> Yeah, gonna, I didn't want to go that far, but yeah. So it's amazing. They're, they're happy to have questions. They're happy to have discussion. And have your own opinion. And like I said, he, he actually encouraged you to have multiple opinions. So that was one thing that really, really like immediately stuck out is this guy, Giddy, says, Welcome home, and I'm inviting you to be Jewish. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is absolutely insane. 
So what I was thinking is like, number one, this guy is the most sincere, oddest, confident, wildest, and coolest person I've ever met. This is like the, the nuttiest, wildest, coolest person I've ever met. And number two, I want to be his friend. Really want to be his friend. I want to get to know him. So I did take him up on that offer throughout the trip. And I asked him lots of questions. I asked him questions that I probably wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't say here, but I just like deep level questions about Judaism, deep level questions about spirituality. And he was like more than happy to talk to me and debate with me and figure things out. And it wasn't just me, it was everybody. Everybody on the trip, he was like that one. So the next person that I met is a rabbi. He's like, well, this is cool. So what ended up happening is, is the second day, I think it was the second day, we ended up staying, we, you know, we did our tour and we saw all the sites and all the interesting things that, that happened in the land. One thing, just as, as a side, I'm a very relational person, so I'm actually more interested in the relationships that I get to build rather than the sites that I get to see. I mean, the sites are amazing. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing, but some of the most best things for me were just meeting these people. And um, it was just powerful. So that's why I'm talking about people rather than sites and rather than like historical places that we got to go. Because like we did, I mean, we went to see everything. It was crazy, but take a breath, man. What's going on there? <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have to talk to yourself a little bit. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Anyway, so we ended up in Tiberias, where our hotel was. And Tiberias is near the Sea of Galilee. And so, not... Uh, the hotel literally, I think, was like a 10-minute drive see, to the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did pretty much all of his earthly ministry around the Sea of Galilee. And that was pretty cool, but we got to our hotel, we were resting, and then Jose's like, I have a surprise for you guys, essentially. I mean, I don't know if that's what his words were, but to me, like, the way I'm remembering it, I have a surprise for you. So he had, you know, connected us with this Jewish rabbi who decided that, you know, basically he would be the rabbi for our trip, which was amazing. And um, confusing at the same time because I'm like, how's this guy? Like, he's literally Jewish, guys. He's not a Messianic believer. Giddy is not a Messianic believer. He's a, he's a, he's a Jew. Um, super cool guy. And uh, so let me go on story short. We got to our hotel. And now the cool thing was it was Friday night, so I've never... Who knows what Sabbath is? Sabbath, Shabbat? Okay. Kiddush. I love Kiddush. Who wants to explain to the people that don't know what the Sabbath is? Or I can do it myself, I did write it down. <laughs> Basically, guys, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is what's known as the Sabbath. It's a holy time that's set apart to God. You're, to, you're supposed to rest from all work, and basically you're doing your devotions to God and, and, and being connected to your family. And in Israel, this is no stinking joke, guys. Like, have you ever heard of a Sabbath elevator? This blew my mind, culturally speaking, this blew my mind because the Sabbath is so ingrained as a part of their way of being that there's literally, like in, in buildings that have elevators, it's an elevator that on the Sabbath, it just goes up and down, up and down, stops at every floor, you don't push a button. That's like, I don't know, I thought it was cool. Maybe if you guys have to go so you can see how cool it is. Literally, it would take you, like, if you're on, like, think, imagine being on, like, 20, like the, the 20th floor on the Sabbath, and you can't push the button. You just have to do, 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 do. Just walk. Because <laughs> that's less work, right? Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. 
So anyway, guys, the cool thing is we got to meet this this guy's name's Rabbi Natan. That was not supposed to be happen. I don't know what happened, but um, so we met Rabbi Natan, and then we, it was it was it was the Sabbath, so it was Friday night dinner. So I've never been to a Friday night Jewish dinner, and so um, his family actually joined us for the dinner, and that was pretty pretty amazing and pretty life changing. And, and here's why. So at that dinner, he did what I would consider like legalistic or ritual things that, you know, I would maybe, maybe we'd, like we would think about more liturgical services and some of us might judge that as being like legalistic, like why do you have to go through X, Y, and Z and all these different things and does it make sense? But I would tell you what I did notice and if, if uh, I'm not going to describe what the ritual was because frankly I can't remember, but if you do want to know what a Sabbath dinner's like, ask Dave, he probably knows. What I did notice, though, is that though it was a ritual, it was extremely authentic. Like, it was real. It was alive. Like, it was real devotion to God. It was real connection with his family. And what was cool is he, like, how many people were on the trip? Like, 20? So, like, in front of 20 Christians, this rabbi and his family, they did the ritual. They did the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the bread and the blessing, like, the they, they did the wine and, and all this really cool stuff that I, you guys could probably explain a little better, but there, it was alive, man. It was, it didn't feel legalistic at all. It felt alive. And what's really cool is after dinner, he invited us to ask lots of questions and, and he decided that he would share pretty much anything we, anything was on the table with him. He really just allowed us to ask questions and he released a lot of wisdom and, um, Literally so much wisdom came out of this guy that we had to move where we were sitting three times because they closed the dining hall. And then we went up and found this other area where you can like hang out in uh, sort of near like a, like a bar area. And we were talking so loud <laughs> that they asked us to move to like the corner of the room and then we, so we moved three times. And so I just felt really blessed. Like I can't, I, mean, I can't remember all the content of what he said, but I do, like I told you, I, I connect with people like their heart, their relationship, their motives, and things like that. And I'll tell you, this guy loved God. And that surprised me. Really surprised me because I had thought, for sure, it's just like, you know, it's just like legalism. It's just, you have to do X, Y, and Z. It's like what I would say, like, I used to think religion is like man's attempt to, like, tr trick God into connecting with them. So I have to do X, Y, and Z and jump through these hoops so that I can get God's blessings and things like that. That's kind of what I had in my head. Um, but as you can like see, I'm starting to see something here that I, that maybe my belief wasn't true, and what I was seeing about this group of people who I had judged maybe wasn't true. So anyway, this is the coolest thing that the rabbi shared with me, and what was awesome is like even after all he had already poured out, and mind you, like it's on the Sabbath, and he really probably wants to go hang out with his family. After all that talking, he I just found him in a spot. You know how sometimes when like you really appreciate a speaker, you want to grab him and just like bless them and say thank you. And that's what I wanted to do. And so as I was talking to him, I just told him like, I know that we probably believe different things, but I one thing I pride myself in is being willing to change what I believe to make sure that it's lining up with truth. So I always want God's truth. So don't don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about like I change my mind all the time, but I'm really, I really, really, really want God's truth. And I love the truth. And he shared this 
really amazing sort of explanation and rabbinical teaching on what the rabbis talk about, um, the difference between truth and falsehood. And so what's really cool is this is the Hebrew word for falsehood or a lie. It's sheker. We read it from right to left. And what he said is the way that it is written is very unstable. It's written on a point like falsehoods automatically will eventually will find themselves out to be a lie and will fall over. But he said the word for truth is emet. And again, right to left, he says it's extremely stable. And you can see that. It's extremely stable on all its points. And so the truth can't be tipped over, basically. So if, it's, if that makes sense, right? So this is just really cool. So I'm just like, my mind is being bombarded with these people who are different than I expected them to be. And I really wasn't, mind you, I wasn't expecting all that much because I, I didn't necessarily want to go to Israel and I didn't know why I was going. I didn't know what God had for me. <clears throat> but he had some relationships for me, I think. And so after dinner, after dinner, I wasn't alone, but I got alone with God. And I was like, I don't know what you're doing here, God, but this is, this is, this is unexpected. And um, I started realizing something, and it's actually pretty hard for me to share because it's, you know, what I was believing was, was lies about other people that I didn't know, that I had essentially judged them without, without even realizing it. And so basically my eyes were opening and I was beginning to realize that something was like totally out of whack in my heart. I was seeing that people that I judged as legalistic, I saw, I saw them loving God. I saw them loving their families and genuinely doing the best to follow God's scripture that, as it's been revealed to them. I wasn't really sure exactly what to do with that at that, at that time, but I just kept seeking God on it. I think I mentioned it to Dave too, because Dave and I were rooming, and I mentioned to him, I was like, man, I think, I think I'm seeing these people wrong. I think I've seen these people wrong, and I'm not really sure what to do about it. So after some thought, and after some, some just like prayer, and just like really getting with the Lord, this is what I came to realize. <clears throat> I had seen the average Jew through the lens of Jesus' rebukes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. search the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus was never, ever harsh with an average Jewish person. He was harsh with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite of that day. He had great compassion on the average Jewish person. And I made the mistake of reading Jesus' rebukes of the religious elite as rebukes of the average Jewish person that was I was loving God and doing their best. That broke my heart. So the Apostle Paul experienced a shift in his perspective 
when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Can we do that video, please? Uh, you switch it over.
was no faith there. <laughs> I want to propose to you that how Jesus interacts with Saul tells us how Jesus sees Saul. Like I said, it's important, my main mandate is that we learn to see others clearly the way that God sees them. So in lieu of reading all three accounts and acts of this event, I decided that that video did a pretty good job of putting all three accounts together in a way that was meaningful. So let's examine Paul's encounter with the risen Messiah, Jesus. Let's use a different approach than we typically would. Let's view it with the supposition that how God interacts with a person is an indicator of how he sees that person. So, what do we learn from this encounter? Right, so Saul is on his way to persecute Jesus, his followers. And God stops him before that happens in, in Damascus. He stops him on the road. One of the first things I notice is that Jesus addresses him in all three accounts as Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He doesn't say Paul, he says Saul. It's important. Remember, how, how, how God interacts with you or a person lets you know how he views you or a person. The next thing I notice is that Jesus shined a brighter light. In Acts 26, it says that the light was brighter than the noonday, noonday sun. All right, so I've been in Israel and I've seen the sun. This is stinking bright, guys. Like, just imagine, like, you know, if you have the sun here, but like, imagine everything's like white and sandy, and I'm guessing that's white and sandy. I didn't research what Damascus is like. According to the video, it's white and sandy, but. <clears throat> And this sun, this light, is, appears on the road to him that's brighter than the sun. So what's interesting is the, the, the light that God, that Jesus ex exposed him to, exposed the fact that essentially Saul was really walking in darkness. Like if the light is that bright, how much, how much dark, right? The, dif the difference between, between those things. So, Proposing that being exposed to the light, like he was blinded physically. The like scripture doesn't actually; it specifically doesn't say that God blinded him. It says that the light blinded him. So that's kind of important, just just for a little, a little uh, realizing that God didn't blind him, but the light that God used was so powerful that it physically took his sight away. I like to propose that what actually is happening here is that though that light blinded him physically, it enlightened the eyes of his heart. If you go into, not that you need to go here, but Paul talks about I, that he prays, I ask that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I propose, that was in Ephesians 1.18, I propose that that's, he, he was saying that because he had had an experience of his, the eyes of his heart being enlightened. So he was walking in darkness, he's persecuting Jesus, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
and then he says, that he, you know, get get up. He, he takes, he gets into into Damascus. He goes in there, and he's blind for three days. And I propose to you that what was happening in those three days that God had allowed him to be physically blinded, but the eyes of his heart were being enlightened for three days, and he was learning something. So I'd like to propose also that Ananias was God's grace restoring clear vision to Paul. As, as I was going about my studies, I decided, like, there's this, there's this thing where, like, in the Old Testament, if you look up people's names during stories, the names actually are very important to the story itself. And so I said, let me try this real quick. And so I looked up the name Ananias, and it actually, like, it links all the way back to a, to, to a name meaning that essentially means Yahweh has been gracious. So if we apply this technique that we use in the Old Testament, we can see that Ananias was a very, he was a representative of God's grace. And so this whole experience that Paul was having was not to make Paul blind, but to make him actually see, right? And so he was, um, God poured out his grace through brother Ananias, and he began to basically have a lens shift or a perspective change. So he's persecuting Jesus, his followers, thinking, I am doing the work of God. This is, ex I am righteous, I am zealous for God, and, and these people, who are they? You know, who knows what he was thinking, but it was strong enough that he decided, like, let's kill some. Let's take some into prison. Let's really, we need to nip this Jesus thing in the butt. <clears throat> so this is the other cool thing that I noticed, is God, despite all that, he filled Saul with the Holy Spirit. That was part of when God's grace, Ananias, laid hands on him. He said, you see? So he saw. But then he also said, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he did. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, obviously at that time, God commissioned Saul. And the, the ultimate thing was that he responded and was baptized. And Dave's taught me that, you know, baptism is actually... It's a Jewish thing, and it's 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 the mitzvah. It's the mitzvah. It's mikvah. Sorry, guys. Still not a Jew. Um, and and one of the things he did. So this is what happened. One of the things that was cool in Israel is I got baptized. And Dave was saying like, oftentimes when you when you get baptized, when you get dipped in the water, it's not just about declaring that you're like 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 when we do the baptism of of, of the Jewish man Jonathan, it, it's about him declaring that I Jesus is my Messiah, right? And I think, but, but, but the other cool thing is that it has to do with a change of, of status. So when I was baptized in Israel, Dave was like, well, what do you want your change, you know, what do you want to be baptized for? Because I've been baptized before, and the denomination that I came from before, like, we actually just believe in one baptism, and don't get baptized again, there's no need for it. But in, 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 the, in the Jewish culture, it's every, like, a change of status or a change of life, they will go and they'll dip themselves, and they'll be cleansed. And, So, I believe that Paul's status was being changed to a man whose Messiah hadn't come, to a man whose Messiah had come. So he, so he, he had a change of status and he was baptized. Um, you know, and so in summary, like, bef before this encounter, Paul thinks he's seeing clearly, right? He thinks he's doing God's will. But after this encounter, Paul begins realizing that he's not seeing clearly. He's actually blind. Three days of physical blindness is where he, he met Jesus, where he, he was 
I believe he was praying. I believe he was trying to understand what had just happened to him. I believe he was trying to understand, um, essentially readjusting the eyes of his heart. So when Ananias, God's grace comes and opens Saul's physical eyes, it's a sign that Paul's perspective has shifted. So it's not just about, it, it is about God, because God could have left him blind, right? He could have still accomplished his will and left Paul physically blind, but this was a sign so that he, we could know, and that Paul would know that my perspective has shifted. I can see something different than what I saw before. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus... Paul is essentially a terrorist, right? Like, he was a literal terrorist. He's going around killing, persecuting followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Why, why would God not just, just destroy this man off the face of the earth? And I propose that the reason he did that, did not kill him, did not destroy him, did not leave him blind, is because Jesus sees Saul as his chosen vessel. So he's been chosen. So, be, so again... How God interacts with you is an indicator of how he sees you. So how God interacts with Paul or Saul is an indicator of how he sees this guy. And he's, he, he, has, he sees him for a greater destiny. He sees him as the chosen vessel. <clears throat> so can you guys see yourself at all in, in Paul's story? I do. I wasn't seeing clearly, and in Israel, I came to understand that I had judged others from a place of not seeing clearly. In this case, it was specifically Jewish people. This is, this is multi-faceted, multi-layers. You can judge anybody by not seeing clearly, but in this case, my Jewish brothers and sisters I had judged and had not seen them clearly. Because of that, I had an inaccurate perception of them. My perception caused me to focus on their differences rather than what's similar. So I couldn't see until God's grace showed me what was in my heart. So what did I do about that? Like, I was repentant. Like the Lord revealed, your heart is not active, is wrong, you're not seeing clearly. And so I was like, Lord, well, I want my heart to be right, I want to see clearly. And so I, I repented, I asked for forgiveness, he cleansed me, and I had like an amazing trip because I started seeing these, these people in these relationships in a way that I wouldn't have been able to if God didn't approach me when he did at the beginning of the trip. Anyway, my hope is that we'll begin to see the Apostle Paul more clearly, just like Jesus saw him. And this is... This is what I think. I think Jesus poured out his grace on the Jewish Pharisee who was persecuting those who were following Jesus. Jesus equated Saul's persecution of his followers as a direct persecution of Jesus himself. But Jesus chose to reveal himself to Saul. Saul recognized that Jesus was his expected Messiah. And through that encounter, Jesus caused a perspective shift in Paul. He went from a man with no Messiah, became a man that had a Messiah, and that Messiah was Jesus of Nazareth. Saul was now a follower of Jesus. He became the Jewish apostle who would carry the good news of Jesus to both Jews and non-Jews. And so maybe you're like me and you have not seen people clearly. Maybe, so I want to, 
stop for my sermon for a second and, and say this. On the way in, I, I had, I heard the Lord saying something to the effect of, I want to release a spirit of reconciliation today. And so the only way that, see, like, forgiveness is one thing. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is like, you did something wrong to me. I release you to God. I'm not going to hold you in my heart. But maybe you're dangerous and I'm not going to connect to you. So reconciliation is the piece of reconnecting. Reconnecting the thing. So I really feel that the Lord wants yeah. to reconnect them. Reconnect us probably to something more than what we already are having here. But like what I want you to take away from this is that I should have called the worship team up, but that's alright. Where's your team come up? <laughs> no. So anyway, guys, we're gonna, we don't examine how we, we default as humans, we'll end up focusing on the differences rather than what's similar, rather than what we share in common. How God interacts with someone is a key to how he sees that person. <laughs> Lastly, I think this. I think that we all need to ask God to expose us to his light so we can see others clearly. Amen. So um, I started with Psalm 133, and I'm going to end with Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live in harmony. For there the Lord has bestowed the blessing of life forevermore. So remember that when we choose to dwell in unity, there's an anointing that's released by God. Amen. So um, that's all I have for you. Dave's coming up. All right, clap it up for, uh, for Josh and all his preparation, huh? Awesome. You know, a couple things as we just end today, I was just thinking out to me, and one is this, you know, what, what Josh was preaching is not uh, the way of what, uh, I guess a lot of people would say, like a Unitarian church, right? Right. Unitarian churches are all paths lead unto God. We, we know that there's one path to God, right? No one knows the Father except through me, the Son. Amen? Amen. But what Josh is talking about is, is really the unity that we can have as brothers and sisters. Yeah. In faith. Look, uh, in, in the Western church, uh, what is uplifted so much is the extrovert. The person that's loud, the person that's bombastic, the person that's charismatic. When I mean charismatic, I mean in their ability to speak or orate interact with people and there's even a tendency to church where we uplift these people almost as Christian celebrities because like you know they're fashionable and they're hip and they're cool and you know they, they, they have these giftings or whatever and, and that, not even giftings but they have certain personalities now you think that they're like so holy <laughs> come on man there are people that are extroverts and there are people that are introverts you ever hear the old saying right the, 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 the quietest of uh, waters deep uh, run the deepest right those quiet people, those deep introverted people that are really, that are really chewing on some things. And so I think, you know, when we take a look at each other, we can't say one person is holier than another person because we do things different. Anyone here have a spouse that's always late? No. No? Look, it's, this is a huge thing on, on, on differences of life. And like cultural differences, right? So Josh is talking about the differences between, you know, the Jewish culture and other cultures. But all the other cultures of the non-Jewish people, we have differences too. 
Like in my family, this is like the hardest thing when dating when dating my girlfriend, who became my fiance, who's now my wife, who, who, who we're just different. In her family, in my family, if you are not five minutes early, you Amen. are late. Time is respect. Don't waste my time. You're like you're here. This is what you do. This is what you're supposed to do. This is like a very like German kind of thing. Amen. My wife's family, they're from the Mediterranean. It's like ah. 30 minutes late, who cares? Mm. I care! That's who cares! Why do you care? Like, wouldn't it be better to, like, just not be in a rush in the morning and take your time and enjoy breakfast with one another and then get to the party or get to the thing when it's... when you're able to arrive? And I'm like... To this day, I'm like... And my wife, there's three girls, right? And my, and my wife's not a fan. She's the best out of the three. The youngest, it's like... I don't even know. <laughs> this is what we're talking about, the differences, right? They're, they're, you can't allow these differences in the church to disrupt the unity of the presence of God. Amen. Right? Behold how good, as he says, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. What's so powerful here is the unity brings forth the presence of God. For this unity is like the oil, the anointing oil, the Mashiach that is on the beard of Aaron. The priests who bore the presence of God. He's likening the unity of brothers and sisters like the anointing of the presence of God. And I just feel like we just need to walk away with this, man. God says the world will know that you are my disciples, not by how many soups and bread that you give to people, not by how well you orate and how powerful the worship is and how much money you give to the poor and how many people you raise from the dead and how many people you do this and prophecy on. No, what does he say? They will know that you are my disciples by the love. How many of us are seeking prophetic words? How many of us are seeking giftings to raise, you know, to pray for people and see them healed? I mean, these are good things, they're beautiful things. We want these things. But God from heaven is, is like, if you have not love, it's like a clanging of symbols. It's love, the love between brothers and sisters. And you know it's so much easier, I find, to love people that are lost than love people that are saved that are just irritating me. <laughs> no, talking like, like those that are lost are like, ah, they're not saved, I get it. I can love you. Those people that are saved are just like, I'm like, oh. Lord, it's so hard to love them. It's like, because you're brothers. Right? Can and Abel. You see, the fall of the garden was a, a sin towards God. An offense towards God. But Cain and Abel was an offense towards God. It was also an offense to your brother. And that's why it's so hard dealing with brothers. That ancient sin. The Lord says He's brought a ministry of reconciliation. A ministry of reconciliation, not just for man unto God, but also man between man. Brother between brother. Brother between sister. Sister between sister. Why don't we just stand? Why don't we just stand and close out the, the declaration, Lord, that we want to be a people that act in unity. We want to be a people that are bound together. And Lord, yeah, we're different. 
I'm from a, a German Northern European background. Some people are from Irish backgrounds. Some people are from African backgrounds. Some people are from Puerto Rican backgrounds. And it's so beautiful because there's beauty in the diversity of things. But there's one thing that we are not diverse on. And there's one thing that we bind together. And that is declaring the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. As Father, we just praise you and thank you that there are multiple skin tones in this body. Lord, we praise you and thank you that there are different skill sets and different giftings, that there are extroverted, and that there's introverted, and that there's young, and that there's old, and there's black, and there's white, and there's dead. Lord, we thank you. You're bringing together a unique tribe of people who say, hey, I may eat different things, and I may do different things, but we bind together in the spirit of brotherhood because of the coming of the Son. Father, let the unity, let the unity bring the oil. Let the unity bring the anointing of God. Let the anointing, yes, produce gifts of tongues and gifts of prophecy and gifts of healing. But, oh, Lord, let it bring such a gifting of love that the world sees and says, surely, surely they are a strange and peculiar people. Amen? Amen. Amen.